Our scripture reader this our scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jared, for reading so well for us, and Jeremiah for leading us so well in worship, as well as to the team of musicians. Uh, we're in the middle of a series on deacons, so join me in a word of prayer as we see God's help to understand his word this morning. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much that you've given us your word. We pray that as uh, we open your word and explain your word, uh, that you would draw near by your spirit to speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, as I mentioned, we're in the middle of a series on deacons. As we begin uh, looking at Acts chapter 6, verse 1 to 7, uh, before we begin, let me just define two terms, the term deacon and the term diaconate. Now, the term deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, which literally means servant. And the way that the Bible uses this word uh, happens in one of two ways, one in a more generic sense and one in a specific sense. If you go to Matthew 20, 26, Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, must be your deacon. That's the word deacon. So in a more generic sense, all of us are deacons. All of us are servants of God and servants of one another. That's one way that the Bible uses the word deacon or diaconus. But there is a more specific way that the Bible uses this word. And that is found in places like Philippians 1 verse 1, where it's referring to the office or the role of deacon. Thank you so much, Jeremiah. That water tasted very sweet. Where was I again? Okay, we're referring to uh, the role or the office of deacons. So if you look at Philippians 1 verse 1, Paul addresses the church in Philippi and he says, All the saints in Christ, that's everyone who are in Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. That's why he uses the word diakonos in a more specific sense to refer to a specific office or role of deacon. Now, I was thinking how to illustrate this, and I, I thought of this. Uh, in some ways, all of us are teachers, right? All of us can teach something to someone else. So all of us, in some sense, in some generic sense, are teachers. But yet, there are some among us who have been set apart for the profession of teaching. So all of us are teachers, but some better vocation, better call, better office, better calling of teacher. And that's the two ways that the Bible uses the term deacon. One is a generic sense where all of us are deacons, but a more specific sense, like Philippians 1 verse 1, where it's, it's actually referring to the office of deacon. We go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 to 13. 
uh, that Joe will be unpacking for us next week. And that gives us the qualifications, not of every single person, but of those who are called to the office of deacon. Now, second term that I'd like to define is the term diaconate. When you hear the term diaconate, it means the body or committee of deacons together with their helpers that come together to do the work of deaconing. Now, if you've listened to the last five minutes, I can tell some of you are bored, confused. You kind of wonder how that's even relevant to my life. Uh, hold on a moment, okay? I know some of you might be non-Christians. You're kind of listening in, and you're wondering to yourself, what does this have to do with me? Couldn't I just listen to something a bit more inspirational uh, from you? And even Christians, a lot of us feel that way. Let me say this to you. I read an article this week uh, from the Reader's Digest that suggested that the way that you organize your house or your living space actually has a lot to say about your personality. Okay, so a couple of things that he mentioned in the article, but just let me highlight two. This article said that if you have lots of family photographs, you probably have a very nostalgic personality. How many of you have a lot of nostalgic personalities here? Uh, just go to the house and you'll see. Uh, the other thing that the article says is if you arrange your living room furniture in a particular way, it actually reveals how social you are the kind of pieces of furniture you are, you have, the direction you put them in, all of these things reveal something about your personality. So how you organize your house actually says something about the kind of personality that you have. But let me just say this, friends. The way God organizes his house says a lot about the kind of person he is. Says a lot about the kind of God he is. We saw two weeks ago that Psalm 68, verse 5 and 6 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. In Deuteronomy 10, 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving them food and clothing. We saw two weeks ago that God has a special heart for the poor and for the needy. But each of us might question, where in the world do we see that in a very real and tangible form? It's not just theory, my friends. It's real. And it's real because God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ himself has called us as a church to have deacons. The way God organizes his church, he created an entire office and gives authority to this office to carry out the mission of caring for the poor and needy. And that is how we see God's care for the poor and needy in a very real and tangible way. That is how we don't just hear about God's heart for the poor and needy, but we see it in action. And friends, can I just say to you that this isn't merely sentimental. It is very subversive, speaking truth to power, because this is also how God himself shows the world what he is like. During the Second World War, the Nazis had conquered the Netherlands, but the deacons of the Dutch Reformed Church, they cared for the politically persecuted by providing food and refuge for those who were being persecuted by the Nazis. When the Nazis realized what was happening, they actually ordered the church to eliminate the office of deacon. No problem having a pastor and elders, that's fine. Just get rid of the deacons. Now, the Reformed Synod, very boldly responded in 1941. And this is what they said to the Nazis. Whoever touches the diaconate interferes with what Christ has ordained as the task of the church. Whoever lays hands on the diaconate lays hands on worship. 
And because of that boldness, the Nazis actually backed down. You see, friends, this isn't just theory. This isn't just administration. But the way we organize our church according to Scripture shows us just who God is and what He is like. It shows us in the church and it shows a watching world what our God and King is like. And that's why, friends, we turn now to Acts chapter 6, verse 1 to 7. And I want us to see three things from this passage. Why we need deacons, how we get deacons, and what do deacons do? Why we need deacons, how we get deacons, and what do deacons do? Come with me to verse 1. It says there in verse 1, In those days when the, apostles were in, the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Friends, this is the Jerusalem church, and it is a church in revival. It is a church that is vibrant, and it is a church that is growing. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Many came to Christ and joined the church. By Acts chapter 6, scholars estimate that there were 8,000 people in the Jerusalem church. This is a church that was vibrant, a church that was growing, a church that was in revival. But even though this was a church in revival mode, growing and increasing and vibrant, something bad was brewing in this church. It says that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Now that word complaint can also be translated grumbling or murmuring. In this revival situation, when many were coming to Christ, there was vibrant worship and a vibrant time of coming together, murmurings and grumblings began to take place in this church. Now, this complaint was by the Hellenists against the Hebrews. Now, who were the Hellenists and who were the Hebrews? The Hellenists, my friends, were Greek-speaking Jews. They were not from Jerusalem. They had moved to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, heard the gospel, been converted to Christ, and because they were converted to Christ, decided to stay on in Jerusalem and decided to join the Jerusalem church. They came from outside and they came in. They were foreigners. The Hebrews, on the other hand, were Aramaic-speaking Jews. They were local to Jerusalem. They were part of synagogues. They also heard the gospel on the day of Pentecost. They came to Christ. They had left the synagogue and become a part of the Jerusalem church. And so this was the makeup of the original church in Jerusalem. You had two groups with different cultures and different languages coming together. The Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews, all who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and been converted and come to Christ together in the Jerusalem church. Now, friends, when you put together two groups with different culture and different language, even around the gospel of Jesus Christ, this text gives us some very real things to consider. Tensions will arise. It says here that the Hellenist widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, that word distribution can also be translated daily service. It's actually the word, of, it's actually the word deaconing. They were actually being neglected in the daily distribution on the daily service. You see, friends, in those days, if you were a widow, you had basically lost any ability to care for yourself. If you were a Jewish widow, the synagogue would take on your care. They would provide food for you on a daily basis. But if you were a Jewish widow that had heard the gospel and had embraced Jesus Christ, you would be put out of the synagogue and you would no longer have the care of the synagogue. And so the early church under the apostles, recognizing this, made sure that they tried to organize themselves such that the Hebrews and 
Hellenistic widows would get the daily distribution of food. But friends, as the church grew and grew and grew, and the numbers hit 8,000, you can imagine how complex this task had become. And something in the system was broken. And the Hellenistic widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now friends, this is a very serious issue. This issue of complaining and murmuring and grumbling in the church can cause great harm. And we see in the text two reasons. Let me consider the first one. The first reason that this complaint is so serious is that it threatened the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 says the disciples were increasing in number. Verse 7, the end of the passage, concludes, and the word of God continued to increase. Which means, friends, if nothing was done to the complaint in verse 2, verse 7 would not happen. The revival, the increasing in numbers, the growth of the church, the vibrancy would be compromised and derailed if this complaint was not dealt with. If this complaint was not dealt with, it would derail the growth of the church. It would threaten the spread of the gospel. Why is that, friends? Now, friends, look at verse 2. You see, verse 2 tells us if the apostles tried to participate themselves in the daily distribution, they would have to give up preaching the word of God. They would have to divert attention away from a human perspective from preaching the gospel. And if there was less of the gospel being preached, at least from a human perspective, there would be fewer people coming to Christ and fewer people growing in Christ. You see, friends, in his wisdom, God has chosen the ministry of the word of God as the means by which he saves people and by which he grows people in Christ. And he expects those who are called to this ministry to work very, very, very hard at this ministry. In 1 Timothy 5.17, it speaks about those who labor in preaching and teaching. Not just get up here and say one or two inspirational things and exciting things, but labor in preaching and teaching. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, friends, with the passing of the apostles, in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, it indicates to us that the responsibility of word ministry is now the responsibility of the pastors and the elders of the church. Now, friends, last year when we were, or was it the year before last? year before last when we were teaching about elders, we made a note to you about the role of elders, the kind of things that elders were supposed to do. And we summarized it under four headings by a man by the name of Tim Whitmer. Elders are called to know the sheep, feed the sheep, lead the sheep, and protect the sheep. Know, lead, feed, lead, and protect. And all of this is actually part of doing word ministry. You know the sheep so that you can apply the word to them. And to feed the sheep, you teach them the word of God. But not only are we meant to teach people the word of God, we're meant to lead them in the ways of God through the word of God, and we're meant to protect the sheep also by the word of God. Now, friends, if I were just to, to, to talk about feeding ministry or teaching ministry, I think there are at least four things that pastors and elders need to give themselves to in order to do this well. They need to give themselves to knowing the Bible well, knowing the culture well, because we speak into a particular culture, 
knowing the people well, and knowing God well. If any of this is missing, word ministry will be compromised. You'll be speaking into a vacuum, or you'll be speaking not from God's word, or you'll be speaking in a way that is irrelevant to the people. Friends, can I say, one of the things that is essential is for the preacher or the teacher of God's word to be convicted about the things that they're bringing to the people. If I'm not spending time praying in all that's here into my heart, if I'm not feeling it here, the truth is you're not going to be feeling it too. And so all of these things need time, energy, and effort. Word ministry is hard work. We're meant to labor in preaching and teaching. We're meant to give time, energy, and effort to these things, and we cannot afford to divert attention away to other things, even important things. And that is how precious and important the ministry of the Word of God is. Without the ministry of the Word of God, there is no church of God, there is no conversion, there is no growth in Christ. My friends, just notice that the apostles are not saying or do not say that as a result of that, we should ignore mercy ministry. That mercy ministry is therefore thus unimportant. In fact, they go to great lengths to organize the church in such a way that both word ministry and mercy ministry can happen simultaneously because God really loves his church. He wants to provide for us spiritually, but he also wants to provide for every other aspect of our lives. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, they delegated the task of serving tables to able men, to some of the very best. It says they were seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom. They were both spiritual men and practical men, those who knew the Word and knew God personally, but also knew how to get things done. Why? Verse 4, so that the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I want to point out something else here in verse 4. You know when it says the ministry of the word, that word ministry is actually the word deacon again. It's the service of the word. Do you see what the apostles are saying here? They're not saying, elders, you are high and mighty, you just preach. But these lowly deacons, they just serve. No, he's saying you all serve as Christ has served you. You serve the people by giving them God's word. The deacons serve the people by meeting the practical needs of the church because it is all important and it is all service. The elders will serve the spiritual needs of the people and the deacons will serve the practical needs of the people. And both are important. Word and deed, both are important if the church is to be all that God wants it to be. Now think along with me, friends. Why is mercy ministry so important to the church? Now, friends, that's the second reason why this complaint, if not dealt with, is such a threat to the early church. Not just the spread of the gospel is being threatened because of this complaint, but the enjoyment of the gospel is also being threatened. Friends, in Acts chapter 2, once people believed in the gospel, it says they devoted themselves to the church community. And in Acts 2.45, it says they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, friends, this is much more closely tied to the gospel than we think it is. 
You see, friends, when they had believed in the gospel, they were liberated. They were liberated from bondage to sin. And because they felt the freedom of the gospel, the freedom of forgiveness of sins, they committed themselves to one another, to other people who had felt the forgiveness of sins from that same gospel. And as a result of having been liberated from sins, they in turn helped to liberate one another from bondage to poverty and affliction. Verse 45 of Acts chapter 2 was birthed out of their experience of the good news of Jesus Christ. They were liberated from sin, and therefore they then worked to liberate one another from affliction and from poverty. That's why Old Testament scholar Cornelis Van Dam, he puts it this way, ministering to the poor is never just a matter of seeing to it that no one is without food. It includes comforting and encouraging the oppressed and ensuring that joy in the spirit for free children of God who have been liberated by Christ should be realized in the communion of the saints. To be liberated from affliction and liberated from a sense of need is an enjoyment of the gospel. And that is being threatened, my friends, when the daily distribution is unfair. So we are called to these two things, friends. The ministry of the word and the ministry of mercy. Both are important to God. Now, friends, as I talk this way, I can imagine two objections coming from the crowd. Tell me if I got it right. Okay, you can nod. Okay, okay. First objection is, your church got poor people, man. Your church got poor people, man. Or, in proper English, we don't have poor and needy people in the church. What's my response to this? Actually, we do. You just need to open your eyes a little bit wider and get involved in more deep way in the community. We do. Remember, friends, two weeks ago when we were talking about the poor and needy, as we looked at different passages in the Old Testament, we realized that God has a much more expansive definition of the poor and needy than we do. Do you remember that? He's not just talking about the materially poor. He's talking about those who are powerless, who have had their power taken from them. We're talking about those who are afflicted and oppressed. All of those are considered needy and poor. So friends, just a scenario. Someone who might have material means, but is suffering from a debilitating mental health issue that's taken away some sense of freedom from that person, God considers that person poor and needy. And God wants the church to care for that person's need. You only have to look a bit more carefully to see that there truly are poor and needy people even among us. But something else I would say, friends, perhaps if we really did organize our church according to what God desires in his word, we will see more poor and needy among us. And not only will we see more poor and needy among us, we will see God acting to care for their needs in real and tangible ways, and we will rejoice together that God is kind and God is real. Galatians 6.10 says this, Do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. You see, friends, yes, the deacons are primarily meant to serve the needs of the church. But friends, this verse says especially, which means 
that the resources and the ministries of the church are meant to spill over out of the walls of the church to touch those outside the church. And perhaps the more we organize ourselves along those lines, the more we will see a greater demonstration of what the church is meant to be, a gathering of all kinds of people under Christ because of his goodness and his grace and how he's acting in the world. First objection. Did I get it right, anyone? Okay, yep, a couple of knots there. Second objection. You talk like that, pastor, we're going to be taken advantage of. People are going to come into our church every week and ask for handouts. Did I get that right, anyone? Okay, a couple of knots here and there. Okay, what do I say to that? Let me be very clear. What you should take away from this series on deacons is not that I now start to give handouts every time I come to church. Okay, that might be appropriate at certain times. Okay, but handouts by and large do not solve the real problem of need and poverty. You see, we're not talking about encouraging everyone to give handouts. We're talking about putting in place appropriate structures in the church so that real needs can be determined and so that the resources of the church, which you contribute to, which is God's money, can be best used to care for the poor and needy. So in 1 Timothy 5, Paul actually gives very strict criteria before a widow could be enlisted on the list of widows that receive the help from the church. It's some kind of assessment that's taking place. That's why we need deacons who are both spiritual and practical people, wise people. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So friends, we're not talking about frivolously spending the church's money. We're talking about putting in place appropriate structures where real needs, genuine needs are assessed and met by the people of God, the church. And taken together, friends, when we do this well, we ensure both the spread of the gospel and the enjoyment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's why, friends, we need deacons. The next two points are much faster. How do we get deacons? Well, friends, if you're members, we'll be stepping through this process uh, quite well with you. But I want to show you that this is not just a made-up process that we pluck from the sky. Uh, this is really emerging from the Word of God. And there are three things in this process of how we get deacons. Number one, the process is led by the leaders. Look at verse 2. The 12, these were the 12 apostles. They summoned the full number of disciples. They called together the entire church. Verse 3 says, they gave the congregation the criteria for deacons. Look for men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom. The entire process was led by the elders, the apostles, and now the elders of the church. They guided the church through this process. They taught from the scriptures to give them the criteria the scripture gives, which is the reason why we've taken four weeks to preach through different sections of scripture, because we want to be leading you according to God's word. The process was led by the leaders. But secondly, and very importantly, the members of the congregation, they were the ones who chose the deacons. Look at verse 3. The apostles say to them, pick out from among you seven men. Verse 5 says, the whole gathering chose. 
Now, friends, I want you to realize how incredibly magnanimous the members were. In fact, I made a quip uh, at the first service that this kind of a makeup of deacon uh, would just not be something that happens in any church in Singapore. I'll tell you why. Okay, look at verse 5. And in verse 5, it's listed there the names of the men who were chosen as deacons. You have Stephen, you have Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. What do you notice about these names, friends? Anyone? These are all Hellenistic names. These are all Greek names. There is not a single Hebrew name in this list which means the church that came together, both Hebrews and Hellenists, they chose seven Hellenists, gave them authority, church authority and power to deal with the situation. You see, friends, when we tend to pick leaders, what are we looking out for? We're looking out for people that can guard our interests in the church. Right? I want this man to represent my interests. And so, if we were to put this to a vote in Singapore, most likely you would have maybe three Hebrews and three Hellenists. But in this situation, because of the gospel, they had incredibly soft hearts. They saw that the need was real, and they saw that the best people to meet those needs were not Hebrews, but Hellenists. And within the church, they were willing to see power and give power to the Hellenists, the foreigners, so that those needs could be met. And friend, that kind of a heart can only come if you've truly experienced the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you're no longer looking out for yourself. You're looking out for others because you know in Christ all your needs have been met. So the congregation is involved in choosing the deacons. And they were incredibly, incredibly magnanimous and generous in their hearts. Thirdly, friends, God is the one who ultimately gives the church deacons. So after the elders led the process, the members chose the deacons, what did they do in verse 6? It says they prayed and they laid hands on them. And I don't want you to miss this detail. If you turn to Acts chapter 13, verse 2 and 3, you'll see that the praying and the laying on of hands was a symbol, a sign that it was the Holy Spirit himself who had given two men to the church for a particular work. Which means here in verse 6, when they laid hands and prayed, it was a sign that they recognized that although this process was led by the elders and the, mem the deacons were chosen by the members, ultimately it's God by His Holy Spirit through this process that has led them to this place and these men that are standing before them and then kneeling and laying hands on them, these are the men that God Himself has chosen for the church. God is intimately involved in this process. The Holy Spirit is intimately involved in this process. Which means two things, friends. Number one, we need to be incredibly prayerful as we're choosing our deacons. You're not just here to choose the person you like, friends. You need to be prayerful and wise about your choice of deacon as you nominate. Pray about it. Why not come next Friday for the prayer meeting? We are going to be praying about our process because starting next week, we're going to be opening up the nominating process. And as a symbol and a sign of wanting to be prayerful, 
why not make some time next Friday to come together with the rest of the church to pray for this process because we trust and we know that God by His Spirit is guiding us through. But the second thing, friends, is simply this. Be bold and generous in your nominations and later in your voting. But let's talk about the nominations first. You see, friends, um, particularly in our culture, right, we are very stingy. We're stingy with compliments and we're stingy with recognizing that this person could be a deacon, right? So we hold back, we hold back and we're so full of fear. We're afraid that if I nominate this person and he becomes a deacon and then everything just gets messed up. Friends, if we trust that God is the one who is at work, we don't have to have that fear. We can pray about it, but we can be incredibly generous and open-hearted as we make our nominations. We don't have to fear. We can be generous and do what God has called us to do in His Word. Two things to that. Number one, God is guiding and leading us. But number two, you recognize that because this whole process is being led by the elders, that the entire responsibility is not placed on your shoulders. After you nominate, there's still an entire process of training, assessment, examinations, interviews before the qualified deacons are placed before you to then vote again. What I'm trying to say to all of us, friends, is be prayerful, but be bold. Don't be scared. Nominate. Don't be so stingy with your nomination. Be free. Be free. You've seen people at work in our church. They're not perfect. They will never be perfect until the second coming of Jesus Christ. But they are people that you can nominate because they've been called by God. So play our role. Be prayerful, but also be bold. Every single member. Finally, what do deacons do? Let's look at what deacons do. There were seven of them serving 8,000 people. So it couldn't be that they were the ones who were the only ones literally giving food to the widows, which means most likely that they were the ones who mobilized and coordinated the rest of the church to get things done. They were coordinators and mobilizers. And friends, in order to get food into the hands and into the tummies of so many people, they had to mobilize other things. They had to mobilize the finances of the church. They had to mobilize the property and belongings of the church. And as they extended that care, they also needed to extend comfort and encouragement to those that they served. And in essence, they were creating space for elders to do that job of prayer and the word. That's why, friends, the resource book for deacons in the Presbyterian Church in America, it recommends, and again, you know, we have to treat this for our own context, it recommends at least four committees in the church. The Finance Committee, the Property Committee, the Practical Helps Committee, and the Mercy Committee. And each of these, led by deacons, but bringing together people in the church to do the work of service. Which means, friends, that there will be a diversity of gifts, talents, and specializations within the diaconate. Not every deacon will do every practical task. Not every deacon has to be exactly the same. And it also means, friends, that many non-deacons will be involved in the work of the diaconate. And friends, as we draw to a close, I don't know how you're feeling, but as I think about this, as the pastor of this church, I feel 
this is an incredibly daunting task. How in the world are we going to get deacons? Will we get even one deacon? This is an amazingly daunting task. How can we even begin? I want to suggest two things in closing. Number one, we're not doing this alone. The deacons are not doing this alone. Last week's sermons were incredibly, incredibly important. I told Joel, it's one of those sermons that's meant to shift the culture of our church. It's a sermon that says, we are our brothers and sisters keepers, and we are called to serve and love one another. So it's not just the deacons. All of us are called to love and serve one another. The deacons coordinate, the deacons are set apart for this, but all of us are called to do this. Now, friends, Acts 11.30, this, this is very interesting. I, I never noticed this until I, I was preparing for this sermon. You know, when the Jerusalem church sent aid to the Judean church, the church in Judea, Acts 11.30 actually says that that financial aid was received by the elders of the church, not by the deacons, but by the elders. Which means, although the elders do give themselves to preaching and teaching, ministry of the word and prayer, it does not absolve them of the responsibility of participating in some way in mercy ministry. So we're in this together, friends, as a church. All of us. This is the kind of church we're building. This is the direction we're heading toward. But secondly, friends, we need to look to the first and greatest deacon. Remember I said at the beginning of the sermon, the word deacon is used in different ways. It's a more generic sense, it's applied to everyone, a more specific sense is applied to the offices of the church. Do you know that the word deacon is applied to one other significant person in the Bible? Turn with me to Mark chapter 10.45 and we'll conclude with this. Mark 10.45 says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word serve, friends, is the word deacon. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not come to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for for many. Who is the first and greatest deacon, my friends? His name is Jesus. And how have you interacted with this first and greatest deacon? In the poverty of your sin and damnation, in your need, in your greatest need, as you were far away from God. This first deacon came from heaven and he served you to the very he went to the cross for your sins and for my sins because we were spiritually needy and spiritually poor. And by going to the cross, this first and greatest deacon has poured out in your life the resources of heaven's grace so that you will never, ever be spiritually poor again. Friends, this is our greatest need, and this is our greatest poverty. And if Jesus Christ himself would go to the cross to meet your greatest need 
and to meet your greatest poverty, you can be sure that he will meet your every other need. More than that, friends. You can be sure that as we look to him together as a church, that in us and with us and through us, he will meet every need of the people whom he loves. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that our hearts are cold when we think about providing for the poor and the needy. We look at the many things we have to do in our own lives, the many responsibilities and the many ambitions and the many places we want to go. And this talk of the poor and needy either makes us feel very heavy or makes us yawn. And we confess to you, Father, that we do not see the poverty of our own hearts. And so we ask you today, Lord, to open our eyes to see how poor we really are. And open our eyes to also see today that apart from our first and greatest deacon, we would still be poor. But because of our first and greatest deacon, Jesus Christ, we are now spiritually rich. We've been reconciled to God. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've been adopted into the family of God. We have a bright and great future ahead. And I pray, Father, that that would be so real to us that as we look at others who are poor and needy, we would not look in judgment, but in solidarity and care. Father, we pray for our church as we continue to press on to put in place deacons. Would you speak? to the right people as they are nominating? And would you speak to the right people as they are being nominated? And may this entire exercise be spiritual and rewarding as we look to Jesus, as we look for grace from above. Give us a tangible sense, Lord, of your heart for the poor and needy. Help us not just to know it in our minds, but through this entire process and the restructuring of our entire church, Help us to sense it and know it and feel it and taste it. In Jesus' name we pray.